Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. As cultural institutions across the world are faced with deciding if and when to reopen, we look at two extremes. The Cultural Centre in London that may go dark until 2021 and the museums opening up in Texas even before the coronavirus has receded. There are disparate moods across the cultural spectrum as the implications of the coronavirus continue to make waves. Throughout Europe, there's much relief and optimism as museums tentatively open their doors, while in the US, most museums remain shut as the country passes 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. This week, we're looking at striking stories from either side of the Atlantic, which rather buckle that narrative. We find out about the South Bank Centre in London's announcement that it's at risk of closure until 2021 from Ralph Rugoff, the director of the Hayward Gallery, one of the centre's venues. And we hear from Brandon Zeck, the publisher of the Texas-based art publication Glass Tire, about a visit to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. And in the latest in our series Lonely Works, about objects in museums that are closed due to the coronavirus, the artist Michael Rakowitz tells us about some ancient figurines in the Oriental Institute in Chicago. Before we begin, just to tell you about something new from the art newspaper, themed monthly collections from our 30-year archive. You can view the archive collections on theartnewspaper.com, our iOS app, or in the newspaper. Now, the post-lockdown roadmap to reopening for many museums in the US is filled with what-ifs and what-nows, if not a few oh-nos. Many lack the financial or staffing resources to open up at a reduced capacity, while others remain anxiously shuttered due to state government mandates. One of the first states to wholly emerge from the lockdown is Texas, where Governor Sylvester Turner lifted measures on the 1st of May. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, with the second largest institutional endowment in the US, reopened to the public on the 23rd of May at 25% capacity, even as the city's mayor suggested his preference was for museums and zoos to stay shut until the 1st of June. As one of the largest museums in the region, its reopening provides a valuable litmus test. Yet other museums and galleries across the state, in Fort Worth, Dallas and Austin, have yet to offer reopening dates, and other institutions in Houston, like the Menel Collection and the Contemporary Arts Museum, remain shut, watching and waiting to see what happens next. Others further afield, in remote areas like Martha, are concerned that they may not have the safety measures in place even if they do have the space for social distancing, given that few, if no, cases of COVID-19 have been reported there. But as more states begin to reopen, what these institutions choose to do and what they choose not to do could prove a valuable guide. Margaret Carrigan, one of our editors in New York, spoke with Brandon Zeck, the publisher of the Texas-based art publication Glass Tire, about the mixed feelings he had setting foot in the MFA Houston after two months of staying home, and what comes next for museums in Texas and beyond. So, Brandon, you were among some of the first to re-enter the MFA Houston when it reopened to the public. You went on the first day. It was officially open to the public on the 23rd of May. Can you kind of walk us through what it was like, what this experience was like for you? Because there have been a lot of varying opinions about whether or not Texas or any state should be reopening right now, what those benchmarks mean, and and maybe just give us a little sense of, of what does it mean for a cultural institution like the MFA Houston to be a leader in reopening, not just in Texas, but also in the U.S. at large? Yeah, so just kind of in general, the experience itself, uh, I actually was kind of 
anxious about visiting. And in some ways, I wasn't sure if I would have visited had I not been covering it for Glass Tire. Um, But uh, the experience was actually a lot kind of easier and a a lot less anxiety producing than I expected. So just visiting as a whole, you know, you waited in a socially distanced line. All visitors were required to wear masks. Um, And that's something, you know, all across Texas right now, there's kind of best practices are to wear masks, but a lot of places aren't requiring that. But all of the cultural institutions that are opening are, which is great. As for what it means for an institution like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston to kind of lead the U.S. in reopening, being from Texas and kind of having the independent Texas mindset, I, it doesn't really surprise me that a Texas institution might lead the U.S. And actually, our science museum in Houston opened on May 15th, so it opened a solid week before the Museum of Fine Arts Houston reopened to the public. But I think Texas kind of being a leader in reopening is a little, it speaks a little bit to the fact of how our state and our major cities are made up. You know, unlike New York, and you kind of can't understand this unless you've visited Texas, or if you visited somewhere like LA, you kind of have a good uh, comparison model. But Texas is very spread out. Um, we drive cars, not a ton of people take public transit. Uh, there's a lot of kind of being to yourself and an independent mindset that follows that. Um, that isn't to say that the virus hasn't been very serious here. It has, but I I think a lot of the museums kind of have looked at how Texans move through space and decided that they could do it safely, um, for better or for worse. I'm really curious to know what kind of demand there is to go to museums right now, as there is a lot of conflicting advice on what people should be doing, whether they should be staying home or whether they can go. Even as you say, the experience of getting around a place like Houston can be very isolating already just because it is more spread out. What kind of foot traffic is actually coming through the doors of some place like the Museum of Natural Science in, in May? And what does that look like going forward? Are, are there people eager to finally get out and, and be doing social things? I think it's really kind of a mix. So in Texas, we were allowed to start reopening um, after May 1st, which I just personally believed was way early. Um, I know a ton of restaurants, some of them are open at limited capacity right now. Some of them are still only doing takeout and curbside. Um But I I think there is kind of like there is everywhere um, a tendency for people to need something to do at this point. Uh, Again, for better or for worse, you have to kind of decide that on your own in a case-by-case basis. But when I visited the museum, uh, they're only operating on 25% capacity, but 25% for the Museum of Fine Arts Houston is 900 people. Um, it's a fairly large museum spread across multiple buildings. They actually have a new $450 million expansion that's set to open this fall. It's, it's a large institution. So even if you have a number of people in there, it will feel very sparse. Um, I did wait until the first public day just because I wanted to see it open to the general public, not just open for members. And I kind of wanted to go after they had had a little time to get their feet under them uh, for the procedures and everything. But when I went, I went right at the time when they opened at 11. Um, They kind of have reduced hours right now. And it wasn't, it wasn't packed, honestly. Um, 
I don't know if that's because of messaging or because people might not know that they are reopened yet, or if because people are leery about going out. I feel like it could kind of be a combination of all of the factors that you would assume right now. Um, when you kind of compare that, though, a lot of places in Houston are crowded that are open. Like like many parts of America, Houston's parks have been pretty packed. And I don't know the attendance of the uh, Science Museum at this point, but I know that uh, when I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, I saw a number of people that I know, and everyone seemed uh, respectful and knowledgeable and conscientious of kind of the new normal that we're all dealing with. Like I saw a lot of uh, real masks, like N95 masks. So it seemed like people that were visiting the museum were very conscious that they were doing something um, in a place that could possibly not be safe unless the right precautions were taken. That at least is very heartening to hear. Um, I'm also curious, you know, you, you mentioned in the, in the, in the essay that you wrote for glass tire, but that we, we republished on our site about having a couple really lovely moments with the art in this new socially distanced context, that there is a kind of a comfort you find in, in reapproaching some of these things from, you know, the before times, these works that maybe you start noticing more sorrowful faces in it's, or, you know, just having the ability to stand in front of a work for a longer period of time with fewer people within your line of sight. Um, and, and how that shapes your experience with the artwork. But then this also brings up another question for me, which is that it can also limit the types of artworks that are on display. For instance, interactive works are um, on hold in order to limit contact, et cetera, at the, at the museum. And, and I'm wondering how the pandemic might ultimately limit what kind of work gets shown in museums going forward. And, and could that be a step backwards in terms of building diversity within collections? So I think that it might not be a step backward, but I think that it could be a step sideways. Like, I don't think these larger institutions are going to necessarily stop acquiring the major works of our time or the works that they want to eventually or hope that they can eventually exhibit. I kind of would predict a little bit of a sideways step towards collection shows into museums really mining what they already have as a way to do a a few things as a way to try and remind the public that they hold vast swaths of knowledge that they don't exhibit regularly, but also as a as a cost saving procedure. I, I don't necessarily have anything immediately to back this up, other than I know a ton of museums' bottom lines have been so affected by this pandemic and by uh, the lack of ticket sales that. I, I don't see them being able to bring in huge traveling shows, especially if they're not going to be able to sell the same number of tickets and pack those galleries like they normally do. Uh, a gallery at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston on a busy day is just as packed as a gallery at MoMA on a busy day. So when that capacity is cut to 25%, um, the revenue streams won't be the same, and I think that will affect acquisitions to a point, and it might mean that museums will be a little more conscientious about what they're purchasing. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think they're going to stop purchasing interactive artworks just because they can't show them right now. Because, I mean, if museums are the arbiters of kind of our time and our art, they'll be able to show those works eventually in some capacity. So I kind of see a more of an immediate change, uh, but one that will play out over a little while and will 
kind of be money based ultimately. Well, the money is the big sticking point right now, of course. Um, and as you astutely mentioned, the bottom line for so many museums has completely been, you know, moved off the mark, if not off the page entirely. Um, and and to that end, you know, that MFA Houston is kind of in a privileged position to be reopening right now because it is a pretty well endowed museum and, and can afford to open at reduced capacity when fewer visitors yield fewer ticket sales, they can still, you know, afford to pay their staff and whatnot. Um, but there are a lot of other Texas institutions that have not yet announced plans to reopen, maybe because they don't have the financial capacity to or the staff or the safety precautions in place in order to do so. So what does this kind of, like you said, new normal mean for museum sustainability in the future? And, and, and what, are, what how do you think this might shape the museum landscape overall? So... Oddly enough, I think the hardest hit organizations or institutions out of this will kind of be the institutions that normally have a strong amount of flexibility, and that's the small to mid-size organizations that really make up a city's art community as as a whole. You know, obviously the museums that are on top and the galleries are a really pivotal uh, component, but institutions that bring in outside shows while also exhibiting local artists, I think are really going to be the ones that have the hardest pivot and also the longest term effects. Of executive directors that I've spoken to, it seems like these organizations are the ones that are kind of worrying the most, not necessarily about right now because there has been so much relief, but about a year in the future um, when kind of we're having to deal with the new normal and we're making a budget and all of the funding has dried up. Uh, a museum like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they have the second largest endowment in the country. Um, mm -hmm. In a recent interview with the Houston Chronicle, uh, I don't know where they lay now, but Gary Tintero, the director of the museum, said that they have about a 67 to $70 million budget, and they're expecting a deficit now of $2.6 Obviously, compared to the numbers that are coming out of New York to somewhere like the Met, which obviously has a larger budget, but also a larger endowment, uh, compared to like a $100 million deficit, the numbers are significantly less and the museum is able to uh, really operate off of that and not worry about it as much. I mean, also the museum is getting ready, like I said earlier, to open a $450 million expansion. So they've kind of been in this growth process and probably have been stocking the coffers for a little bit. But even just on the basic level, I know these smaller to mid-sized organizations are going to have problems getting the protective equipment that they need and having to uh, organize all of the cleaning that's necessary or at least advisable to reopen. And these organizations aren't going to want to open without those procedures in place. So it's kind of a, a rock and a hard place. While you have the larger institutions that are able to reopen in this capacity, you have the galleries that have kind of never really stopped running. I know a lot of galleries that didn't necessarily close, like do a hard close, but were open by appointment, even though not a lot of people, I think, took advantage of that. But then the organizations that are in the middle are the ones that are going to be um, squeezed the most. There's a lot of considerations that go into reopening for the mid-sized institutions, as you said, not least the safety and the money, but um, 
I'm curious, especially because Texas is is such a good uh, bellwether for this in some ways because it is such a large state. I'm I'm curious to know how other institutions outside of the larger cities are responding to lockdown measures being lifted, specifically places like Marfa. Um, which are kind of destinations, art pilgrimage sites in some ways, are they expecting, you know, a real downturn in just visitors because they don't, people aren't traveling? Or what does that look like for the staff of the institutions out there when they live so far away from, you know, a large hospital or anything like that in case they were to get sick? Have you been speaking with any any of those directors of those institutions and, and kind of gotten a feel for what they're experiencing? I haven't spoken as much to um, directors of institutions out in more remote areas. I've I've actually been speaking more to community members in remote areas, and many of them are either small business owners or artists, or you know they occupy kind of a pivotal role in the community themselves. And it seems like, I mean, there really has been a worry, uh, like a town like Marfa, for example, did really, it shut down for a while. Uh, there was no short-term rentals. Basically, everything was closed. I, I was speaking to an artist. I actually did an interview with the artist Camp Bosworth for Glass Tire, and he was saying that Marfa kind of felt like it did back in the early 2000s, before so many people were going through, before it kind of felt like this tourist destination in addition to being an art destination. Uh, but I know just from following other members of the community on social media, there's there's a genuine worry for these smaller towns because they're just simply not equipped for a place like this. When you have one or two uh, emergency room beds in your town and no real stockpile of anything and no larger medical center close by, um, there's obviously worry Uh Recently on Glass Tire, we published a letter to the editor of the Big Ben Sentinel, which is a paper that's based in Marfa, uh, by the Marfa-based writer Eileen Miles. It's addressed to the board of directors of Chinati and the director of the Chinati Foundation, saying that her and other people in the town feel that it's too early to open. Um, and, you know, this is, again, this is a complex thing because if a small town like Marfa that is seen as a destination for national and international travelers opens, they would in theory be inviting a lot of outside people who feel that Marfa would be something like a safe haven uh, because they haven't had any cases to my knowledge, or if so, it's been one or two in the surrounding area. So I, I think there's, there's worry about flight kind of in the same way that there was worry about flight out of New York to vacation locations around the time this started. Um, as reopenings are happening and as people feel that they can begin traveling again, I feel like these smaller towns are the ones that are kind of really the most worried about it. That hasn't stopped some institutions from opening. Uh, some smaller museums across Texas either have already opened or have announced that they are reopening. Um, and these are institutions that have decent collections of Texas art that have amazing regular rotating shows. But either way, um, there's kind of a, I, I feel like a little bit of a reluctance in talking to even one or two of the directors of these institutions because they want to see where everyone else goes first. I feel like there's a big kind of game of chicken between institutions, not only in Texas, but all across the U.S. kind of trying to determine when and how is going to be best to try and open back.
Yeah, I think this is going to be something that we'll be watching for a really long time. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Brandon. Thank you for having me. In a bit, Michael Rakovitz explores ancient Sumerian figurines in the context of his own ancestral history. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The Toronto-based Cree artist Kent Monkman, who appeared on this podcast in February, has apologised for a recent painting that critics say depicts sexual assault perpetrated against the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Gabriella Angeletti writes. The painting shows a council of Indigenous women with Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, Monkman's supernatural gender-fluid alter ego, at the centre, while Trudeau, who's shown nude from the waist down and on all fours, prepares for, as the artist stated, not a punishment but a consensual act that Miss Chief willingly delivers. Monkman shared images of the work on his social media and said that the work highlights the problems of the Canadian injustice system. It was intended, he said, to address the victimisation of Indigenous women who experience violence and sexual assault more than triple that of non-Indigenous women in Canada and in the US. Some viewers, however, suggested that Monkman was valorising violence rather than critiquing it. In a written apology shared on social media and on his website, Monkman acknowledged that elements included to indicate consent in the painting were not prominent enough. He added, regardless of my intentions, some were harmed while viewing the work. The Turner Prize exhibition will not take place this year in the wake of the coronavirus, Gareth Harris writes. Instead, Tate Britain will award one-off bursaries of £10,000 to 10 artists. The successful recipients of the Turner bursaries, awarded by a jury, are due to be announced in late June. And the Baltimore Museum of Art is using its fortunate position of financial health to redirect resources to local artists, galleries and communities. Three new initiatives are being funded by more than $100,000, diverted from events scheduled for the spring season but recently cancelled. And finally, while most art fairs around the world have been either postponed or cancelled, the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association has taken a different tack by launching a new fair. Unscheduled, featuring solo presentations from 12 galleries, will open in Hong Kong in mid-June. Meanwhile, in Beijing, the private ex-museum finally opens its doors on the 30th of May. You can read these and a wealth of other stories at theartnewspaper.com or on the app for iOS, which you can download from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers look online to browse and purchase, Christie's has responded to the current climate with an expanded online-only auction calendar. This June, Christie's will present Classic Week as an online-only sales series of five auctions that includes elegant and timeless pieces from antiquities, books and manuscripts, 19th century paintings and old master paintings and sculpture. Discover and bid on an array of extraordinary works which exemplify harmony and restraint and define standards of form and craftsmanship. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, for the latest in our Lonely Work series, in which we explore art behind the closed doors of museums, the artist Michael Rakovitz has chosen a group of Sumerian figures in the Oriental Institute in Chicago, from the Tel Asmar region of what is now Iraq. These are works that Rakovitz has used powerfully in his video and stop-motion film The Ballad of Special Ops Cody, which featured in his recent touring exhibition at the Castello de Rivoli in Turin and the Whitechapel Gallery in London. And you can see images of these votive statues if you go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Michael, you've chosen a, a collection of figurines. Can you explain more about them? They're a collection of uh, figurines that are at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago um, that is uh, about 
seven or eight miles from where I am right now. And the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute has the lost treasures from Iraq database, which has been central to this project that I'm, I've undertaken likely for the rest of my life titled The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist. So they've had a long relationship with the National Museum of Iraq and also archaeological sites in Iraq since um, since the 1930s. And so the votive statues that I've chosen were excavated in Talasmar in Diyala province in, in Iraq, about 50 miles from Baghdad. And um, and these votive statues, uh, which come from the early dynastic period around 2900 to 2500 BC, uh, there's multiple theories as to why these votive statues existed. I mean, one, one thing that can be agreed on is that these were statues that were carried to the Akitu, to the temples at that time. And... Um, uh, were left by worshippers after they were done praying. And these votive statues, you can see, have their hands clasped in prayer. And um, and it's meant to be a surrogate for the person who was praying. So the idea is that even after you left the shrine, you left that votive statue there in your stead so that you would keep praying by proxy and would receive the blessings in return. And um, I've always seen them in this kind of weird quarantine to begin with because they've always been behind a, a vitrine, as they are in most encyclopedic museums. But now I wonder what their vigil is all about, now that they don't have viewers. Yeah, that's it. I mean, they're sort of standing there, you know, with with without an audience. and norm Because the thing is that they are so direct, aren't they? It's one of the extraordinary things about them. They have these incredible eyes and it's like they are watching you as much as you're looking at them, right? Precisely. For me, it's one of the most profound experiences I've had as a viewer is, you know, looking at these these votive statues and having them look back at me. And as I started in the early 2000s after the looting of the Iraq Museum to think about reappearing the objects that were lost, many of which were these votive statues, I thought about the way that they look back at the viewer. And when I thought about exhibiting that work in the United States, thinking about the way that that work is looking back at somebody who's complicit with uh, with the war and they're speaking with their eyes and so it, it really is kind of a, a very moving artwork you know that goes back to a kind of primal scene in my own my own history being descended from a mother who was uh, Iraqi and whose family comes from Baghdad and as well as the invisible enemy should not exist there's there is this work called the Ballad of Special Ops Cody where you directly you, you talk about them in the vitrine but but in that film you place this model of an American soldier in that case it's lifted up and suddenly these these uh, figures become newly animated in your film can you explain it's a complicated setup but I think you ought to explain the background to that and and and, and tell me about getting access to them in 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 that in that film sure um well the ballad of special ops Cody began in 2005 when I was commuting between New York and Baltimore. I was teaching in Baltimore. And uh, one morning I grabbed uh, the only newspaper that they had at the 
at the uh, the newsstand um, before my commute, and it was the Daily News, I think. It was a kind of a tabloid in New York. And on um, the, in the first few pages, they detailed the fact that there was this photograph that was taken of an American soldier uh, named John Adam that, um, that had been kidnapped by this uh, insurgent group called the Mujahideen Squadrons. This is like early February 2005. And they said if um, the, the prisoners that were being held in American jails American-run jails in Iraq and also in places like Saudi Arabia, if those Iraqi prisoners were not uh, released in 24 hours, they were going to behead this soldier. And it was a grainy you know, uh, black and white photo of an African-American soldier in total getup with his hands clasped behind his back. And then um, the the flag that bears the Shaheed on it, which would eventually become the, the ISIS flag. And so for 24 hours, U.S. Central Command was trying to locate John Adam. They couldn't find any any person with his name or this face in their ranks. And... Uh, and the next day, it turned out that a company called Dragon Models uh, recognized that it was a figurine that they made that was for sale on American bases. And they were sold to soldiers in in, in Kuwait and in and Iraq and also in Saudi Arabia. And they were, they were sold with all different kind of ethnic like likenesses, all different kind of racial features. So you could get one that was... A Caucasian, um, another one that was Asian American, um, and male, female. And so the idea w- was that as a soldier, you'd buy the one that looks like you and send it back to your child back at home as a kind of surrogate for yourself. So you'd be present. So all of a sudden, I started realizing this was the most incredible hoax that the um, the insurgent group succeeded in playing on the U.S. Army that was preoccupied with this story for 24 hours. But then I also started to think about these figurines as a kind of modern-day votive statue. And so um, I tracked down one of the last um, of, of its kind online and bought that figurine in 2008. And for a long time, I was wondering what I was going to do with it. And I, all I knew was that I wanted to know what a votive statue from 2005 AD would say to a votive statue from 2005 BC. And uh, through another project, I met this incredible artist who's also an Iraq War veteran named Jin McGill Prather, who happened to be a medic at Camp Buka in Iraq that was putting down a um, a prison riot. Well, she wasn't putting down a prison riot, but she was asked to identify the bodies of Iraqi detainees that were killed after a prison riot, um, just as this story about Special Ops Cody was breaking. And so um, with this long history that I have with the Oriental Institute, I started to think about Cody being let loose in the the Oriental Institute and um, and maybe approaching those vitrines and seeing if if Cody could offer them liberation and with that I gave Jin the premise and I gave her um, a slideshow of everything that Cody would be looking at and um, and she just riffed from there forty five minutes she did it all in one take and it was absolutely beautiful. Her words and her stories, her testimonies, and you know the 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 video 
oscillates between her looking at the damage to the objects in front of Special Ops Cody and um, and then also thinking about the damage that were done to the actual Iraqi bodies that she had to identify after the riot. So it really kind of delves into decolonizing museums, uh, the moral injury of those people who are asked to go and conduct war and commit atrocities. And what was amazing was that the curator at the Oriental Institute, Dr. Jean Evans, was so accommodating and so interested in this because they want to be able to actually have a reckoning with those issues at a place like the OI, because their history is not, you know, one that is just about objects that are populated in their collection um, that are that are taken under uh, questionable circumstances, but they also, by the time they started working in Iraq in the 1930s, there was a lot of mutuality and a lot of consensual activity with the excavations. And so they see also that what's in those vitrines are relationships that they built with their Iraqi friends. Um, and so it's worth saying that after the looting of the Iraq Museum in 2003, one of the people that was instrumental in getting uh, Dr. Dani Georgiouhana into contact with the American forces was Dr. McGuire Gibson, who um, is a scholar that's been at the OI for a long time. Um, so it, it was a really, a really kind of. Um, it, it seems like it would be a very difficult thing to have made happen, but they were they were really so into it. And for the duration of the time that that artwork was on view, uh, that Special Ops Cody was on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, um, the uh, the figurine of Special Ops Cody stayed in that vitrine for about six months with its Iraqi counterparts. One of the things that's really striking about the about the film is that you obviously have this incredibly loving relationship with these works. So there is a you know, and you have this unbelievably close access to them, which it seems to me must have been the first time you'd ever seen them like this. So there is, on the one hand, you're t you're telling this story, but there's also it, it it's it's very much about these unbelievable and ancient objects and and animating them. It's an animated film about this this you know the animation of Special Ops Cody, but also you're reanimating these distant past objects, right? That's a very good way of putting it because um, it does harken back to this story that I've told a few times. But um, my first trip to London happened when I was 10, and it was just months after my grandmother, who lived with us, who um, lived in that house that we were growing up in since she left Baghdad in the 1940s, um, you know, on suburban Long Island, this house uh and um and we were we were supposed to go to london you know even before she passed and to visit her brother nyazi who um was part of the family that emigrated to to the uk instead of the us uh once they could no longer you know um continue living in baghdad and so there was this um you know, it was a little bit like a, a period of mourning, a way of grieving together with my, my grandmother's brother, uh, hearing that same accent, you know, that Iraqi accent that was in all of the English words and 
And I remember on one of the days that we were in London, my mom and dad took me and my brothers to the um, to the British Museum, and we ended up in um, in the the room with the Syrian lion hunt. And uh, my mother sat me and my brothers down on the bench, and she said, um, "This work that you're looking at right now comes from the same place where your grandmama was born and where I was born." And what's it doing here? And then she explained to me that it was the first comic book, you know, that the sequential art of the King Usher Banipal, you know, um, chasing these lions and hunting them down was the first graphic novel or comic book. And when you're 10, there's nothing cooler than, than, than thinking that your people are responsible for the first comic book. Um, but as we moved through the museum, she would constantly point out those objects that they were there and maybe they shouldn't be there. And so that's been my experience with museums, especially encyclopedic museums, um, is to really kind of wonder how much of this was about mutual curiosity in one another's cultures and how much of it was a continued displacement and an exodus and an exile. And when you grow up as an Arab Jew, and you hear those stories of the Exodus, they mean many different things at the same time. So it um, it really is exactly what you say. It was an intimate experience with what art can do, even when it's held in a space of tension, even when it is problematic, even when there is something that's irreconcilably uh, in there that, that can't be... Um, that 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 can't be unlinked you know to the pain and the trauma that it's caused but it 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 helps you understand yourself a little bit better i find well michael thank you so much for telling us about these works and about your work it's been a pleasure talking thank you thanks so much you can find out more about the statues at oi.uchicago.edu and you can watch an excerpt of the Ballad of Special Ops Cody at the Sharjah Art Foundation's Vimeo channel. And finally this week, the South Bank Centre, the cluster of performance and visual arts venues on the South Bank of the Thames in London, including the Royal Festival Hall and the Hayward Gallery, announced in stark terms that it was at risk of closure until at least April 2021, because, it said, of crippling financial pressure as its reserves run dry as a result of the economic impact of COVID-19. Since closing on the 17th of March, the organisation has furloughed most of its staff but is facing a £5.1 million deficit in this financial year. A £5 million loss is the best-case scenario, it says. And it adds that loss is despite receiving the money through the UK government's furlough scheme and using up all its reserves and the remainder of its annual grant from Arts Council England to effectively mothball its buildings. It warns of staff redundancies and says that the organisation will cease to be a going concern before the end of 2020 if further urgent support is not secured. The venue that is least affected is the Hayward Gallery, which still hopes to open its doors alongside other UK museums and galleries at some point this summer. Ralph Rugoff is the director of the Hayward Gallery and was the artistic director of the Last Venice Biennale exhibition, May You Live in Interesting Times. I spoke to him about the problems facing the centre and the particular situation regarding the Hayward. The first question I wanted to ask Ralph is, is this April 2021 date inevitable or are you saying that you could open venues if you get additional funding to help you put on events with 30% capacity? 
Well, there's two different dates. I mean, right now we're actively exploring opening the Hayward Gallery sometime this summer. Right. So what, what the recent headlines have been about were about the concert halls at South Bank Center. And concert halls, of course, are in a really different situation. As long as there's a recommended social distancing of two meters, it's very difficult to imagine getting a crowd of people into a concert hall, you know, seating them uh, in any way that would allow you to make ends meet. I mean, I early on, I saw a figure from Italy where a theater in Milan was only having, uh, using one out of every nine seats in order to ensure social distancing. So with that kind of reduction of your audience, you, you're going to lose a vast amount of money every time you put on a performance. Um, and the galleries were in a different situation because galleries don't depend on huge crowds of people all gathering together and sitting elbow to elbow. It's much more easy to have people come in and maintain a safe distance from each other. Um, so like many other galleries in London, you know, we're in the process right now of putting together our risk assessment, you know, guidelines for how we would go about ensuring that visitors could have a safe experience when they visit. Um, but this has to go through a number of different steps and ultimately involves consulting with the unions, and then it has to go to our board for sign-off. But I'm optimistic that you know we'll, we'll probably get there in the end, and sometime this summer we'll reopen the exhibition that we opened for two weeks in the beginning of March, Among the Trees. That's great. I was going to ask about Among the Trees, because obviously, yes, you say it opened in the beginning of March, so it had about two weeks uh, in which the public could see it. Have you managed to keep it in its entirety, or all the works in, in place still? We did. I mean, one of the things, because that show was supposed to end on May 17th, and, and one of the really encouraging things is that all the lenders were incredibly supportive and enthusiastic about the show continuing, and they were willing to extend their loans for what would really be an additional five months. And, you know, this is both public institutions, semi-private institutions, foundations, and individual lenders. And, uh, you know, the universal uh, response was just, yes, we really want to help you do this. And of course, I mean, you had another um, big group show planned, which was Zoe Whitley's um, Reverb Sound into Art. Obviously, that is more complex in lots of ways. And, you know, I'm just wondering, is there is there a sort of a domino effect with that show or will you be postponing that show? No, we will be postponing that show. And we're just trying to work out now... Uh, when will be the best time to do it? I mean, that show in, included a couple of significant outdoor installations. So it's ideally something you want to do in the summertime. Um, and, you know, what we haven't really got into yet is looking at how we will go about deinstalling and reinstalling exhibitions. You know, it's one thing to reopen a show that's already in place and you can get rid of your ticket desk, only sell tickets online, have temperature sensors, do all the things, you know, that everyone's going to do when we reopen. Uh, have much regular disinfecting and cleaning of the space throughout the day. Have a prescribed route through the gallery so people don't bump into each other. 
But what's much more difficult is how your teams of art handlers and technicians work together on complicated shows in a safe way. Now, obviously, the construction industry is, is at work and they're figuring out some protocols. Um, but I think, you know, each sector is, is got to figure out the best way to do this. Yeah, especially because so many, I mean, obviously that's a sound show, but just if we talk more generally, the, the, the you know, very often when a show's being installed, there are, there are precious objects which need two people to stand very, very close together to hold together, right? So, I mean, it's going to affect the nature of the objects that you choose during this period, right? It could. I mean, you know, it also could be a period where you don't want to have complex sculptural installations where people crowd into a closed room. And as opposed to, say, looking at things on a wall where it's much easier to maintain a flow through the gallery. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're having to re really look at everything. I mean, we had one exhibition we were planning on that involved showing uh, a major film and we were hoping to have a theater space where we could have 200 seats. But when you, if you have to have social distancing, we can only get 36 people in that same space. So these are the kinds of challenges that I think we're, all galleries are having to look at and deal with now. Yeah. Can we talk again about, about the, the, the Haywoods sort of place in the South Bank Centre ecosystem, as it were? It, obviously, as you, as you say, there is a... It's an anomaly because it is an art gallery and therefore you can there are different measures that you can take to make it safer and, and more viable. But nonetheless, it is funded through the same mechanisms. So, you know, the, the, the statement that was published earlier this week is really bleak. It talks about South Bank Centre potentially, you know, losing the ability to be a going concern within this financial year. Obviously, that affects the Hayward Gallery too. So can you say what measures you need to be taken by funding bodies, by, by the government, in order to, to help South Bank Centre, and I presume the Hayward Gallery, to keep going? I mean, things, there's things that can happen on several different levels. And I think uh, right now, cultural institutions like South Bank Centre are still exploring possibilities for some emergency funding from the government to get through this period. Um, and... The furlough program has been a huge bonus in terms of allowing cultural institutions like South Bank Center to continue without having to immediately go into redundancy situations. You know, if the government provides, you know, emergency funding to sustain the cultural sector, uh, I don't think we'll see that leak scenario that's, that's you know, is one possible outcome that I think... Um, Elaine Bedell, our CEO, was, was mentioning in these articles. You know, I think it's important to also bear in mind that that scenario is if we continued down our current path without changing anything. Um, and, you know, some of that is based on the fact that, say, South Bank Center rents out 14 spaces to 14 different restaurants and cafes and shops. Of course, they're all on a rent holiday right now. If those businesses are able to come back online, that will generate revenue that's missing now. 
And um, you know what, what I think is particularly challenging and sometimes feels very frustrating for those of us working in the sector is you just can't predict what's going to happen. You know, I mean, the, late, the thing I was reading in the paper today is Boris Johnson is saying maybe pubs will reopen in June. <laughs> so, you know, if pubs can reopen in June, restaurants along the South Bank Center can probably open in the summertime. But, uh, and if that happens, that'll, that'll change one element of this story. Um, you know, we're also looking at uh, different funders and funders, of course, want to fund activity. And if you don't know when you can resume, say, having concerts, it's difficult to get support for those concerts. And, uh, you know, there's some talk recently that maybe they'll reduce the social, the, the social distance requirement to one meter, which apparently is what the World Health Organization is citing. Uh, if you did that, then suddenly you could probably uh, figure out a way to make concerts viable. And so uh, I suppose what's striking about this is it seems to me that even if we do get a reduction in social distancing measures, so it becomes one metre. Yes, again, you know, you're able to sell more tickets, but still it won't, you won't be, we're looking at a situation in which you still won't be able to return to normal levels of participation in these events. So it seems to me that there needs to be an agreement from government, between government and the and the cultural institutions, that until there is a vaccine or whatever, that there needs to be a level of cultural funding coming from public sources, which allows these venues and institutions and organisations to keep going. Because without that strong commitment for the future, like you say, you're too much in limbo and for too long. You can't make any plans, right? No, I think that's a good point. And I, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. Um, <laughs> I do think, you know, I mean, I think a key point also to stress is just that, you know, a lot of the galleries in London who I'm speaking with colleagues from, a lot of people, most of them are planning to reopen in July or August. But everyone is acknowledging that because of decreased, you know, our anticipation of decreased visitor numbers, that no one's going to be making ends meet. And some of the larger institutions that really depend on ticket sales or forecasting, actually, that they'll be losing massive amounts of money every month by reopening. Um, so even if you see galleries reopening, it's not business as usual. It's, it's still a model that definitely needs uh, additional government assistance to make it viable. And I guess one of the things that that's compelling about the South Bank Centre as an institution is this fact that the Royal Festival Hall is a symbol of the Festival of Britain, the 1951 festival that was absolutely about being a, literally, this is the phrase, a tonic for the nation after the war. And so it's, it seems to me that there needs to be something of that spirit, an investment in culture as a tonic for the, no, for the nation after this, after this crisis, right? I think so. I mean, I think my, my hunch is that there are a lot of people out there who are desperate to go out and see exhibitions. I think what we're all going to find is that there are no more tourists, and that they make up, a, for different places, a, a fair number of the visitor totals. But I think people have cabin fever. They want to be transported somewhere. They may not be able to travel, but art obviously transports us. And they want to have a kind of deep, kind of enriching, slow time experience that you can't get from all the endless offers that we're getting on, on online right now. Um, and to be in a space 
where you can be in a safe space with other people, which you can in the gallery. Um, you know, I find this NHS applause night, uh, which I guess tonight we're not going to be doing, uh, has been that one moment where you feel like you're in a safe crowd. People are leaning out their windows or standing on their front steps and you're all together. And I think galleries can offer some sense of you can be together in a safe space uh, and someone's not going to, you know, come up behind you to grab the packet of coffee you're looking at. <laughs> Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about exhibition making in this new era, because it seems to me that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the Haywood is, is a Kunsthalle and, um, there is, but there is a, is a, there is a collection based at the South Bank Centre, which is the Arts Council collection. It's a vast collection of British art. I'm wondering if you are reckoning that you might have to draw more from that as you know in the immediate future because it seems to me that that global travel is going to be interrupted global shipping is going to be interrupted for some time ahead so is is, is the arts council collection suddenly becoming something that you might create shows from as a sort of almost pop-up shows from um probably not completely from it but i think we'd certainly look very closely at borrowing things from it i mean the arts council collection works very closely with uh galleries in three different cities who are part of a national partners program. And they're sort of the priorities in terms of distributing works from the collection. Um, and they regularly make two or three exhibitions a year from the collection, as well as the fact that a lot of the work goes to hundreds of galleries around the country. So it's, I mean, the point of that collection really is to serve the whole country. And we don't, even though we work side by side with the team that runs it, we don't have any claim on being able to get special priority to monopolize it. It's, it's really there to serve a, a different purpose. But I think, certainly I think galleries are going to be looking more at working with artists in their own backyard and not huge international exhibitions in the next couple of years, or at least until this goes away. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be less international. The good thing about the backyard that is the Haywards backyard is it's one of the most global cities in the world and there are international artists everywhere in London. Yeah, no, we're very lucky about that. Okay, so are you sort of at this moment making plans for the future for exhibitions that you weren't expecting to have to make? Yes, but I have to say that there's still a lot of dust that's waiting to settle. You know, I mean, there's been an amazing movement for galleries that are involved in, say, touring exhibitions in terms of what's happening to those tours. And if somebody drops out, do they get at the end of the queue? Uh, what happens is the whole tour get pushed forward by a year? Um, you know, some we were looking at working with a, the estate of a major artist in 2022, but because all the preceding shows drawing on the work of the estate are now going to be pushed forward uh, we're still waiting to hear whether that work would be available for us to use when we were planning to use it. So there's a lot, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And we're all aware that things might reopen this summer and that there could be a series of successive waves of reinfection in the future. I really hope that we find a way to make sure that doesn't happen because that will really be. Uh, that would be a devastating blow. Um, so I think people are going to have to err on try to find exhibitions that you can put on 
for reasonable amounts of money uh, because there's a lot of risk right now. You could open a show and find out that you have to close your gallery for three months again. I mean, I think that's the risk, isn't it? And, and I think, you know, in, in again, in that statement, there was a reference to redundancies. And obviously the furlough scheme only goes so far. So I'd imagine that you'd say that redundancies are an absolute last resort, but there there must be planning for an era beyond furloughing, right? So can can you say something about what preparation you've had to make in those in that regard? Well, I think the extension of the furlough has delayed any kind of in-depth, concrete thinking about what will need to be done. And I think before there are any redundancies, you know, you would look at every possible alternative, including, say, job sharing. I mean, we know that we will, unless there's some miraculous return to normality, have to reduce our payroll costs. Um, But there may be different ways of doing that. You know, right now, say, those of us who aren't furloughed, and I'm the only member of the Hayward team currently who's not furloughed, we're working four days a week, so we're also taking a reduction in pay. That could continue into the future. But, I, you know, I, I think all the institutions, I mean, I know the National Theatre just announced that they were doing, I think, 30, they were looking at 30% redundancies. And so I think everyone's realizing it's, it's not just a question of hoping the government's going to fund business as usual, but that everyone's also looking at how they can reduce their expenditure. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us and I hope very much that the Hayward does open soon and that the South Bank Centre does continue and it's back making all those extraordinary uh, artistic events happen all over again very soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage and sign up for our newsletters while you're there. The monthly Art Market Eye is out on Thursday the 4th of June. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Judy Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Ralph, Brandon and Michael. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.